0: Hello and welcome to the Untitled Gen X Podcast,
1: a podcast hosted by two childhood best friends dedicated to the pop culture
0: that raised us. I'm Kate, a writer, a midwife, a current day pop culture know nothing, but nobody puts baby in a corner when it comes to the pop culture of my youth.
1: And I'm Lori, a writer and pop culture lover who's still not over how my so-called life left us hanging.
0: Folks, just a heads up that today's episode explores sensitive themes such as sexual assault, religion, womanhood, sexuality, and identity. Listener discretion
1: is advised. Today we're honoring singer, songwriter, survivor, and sister courage, Tori Amos, and her debut solo triumph, 1992's Little Earthquakes, a revolutionary album responsible for sending shockwaves onto our airwaves and into our souls.
0: But before we get into all the goodness ahead, if you're enjoying the pod, we'd like to remind you to rate and subscribe so you never miss an episode.
1: And just a friendly reminder, we're on Instagram and Facebook at The Untitled Gen X Podcast. So Kate, it's a big day for some little earthquakes. Little earthquakes. Ooh, this album. Such a great album. It's such a powerful statement of an album, and it dropped in 1992. We were 15 years old, and I know you were a huge fan.
0: I was, although I don't think that I was aware of it when it first came out. I'm pretty sure I was 16 Mm -hmm. when it came into my awareness because I listened to it a lot in the little tape deck of my little Honda Civic. No, (laughs) I had a Honda
1: Accord. I lied. It was a Honda Accord hatchback. (laughs) It was great. (laughs) This was an album that seemed to kind of be popular with the deeper crowd. It was the girls who like loved the singer-songwriter-poet types. Yeah, this is how it came into my awareness.
0: I'm pretty sure, I can't remember if it was the single or if it was the whole cassette that was lent to me by our guitar-playing drama friend. Okay. like That's how it came into my world, so mm-hmm. it makes perfect sense, right? Somebody who was sort of in the know about the cool music.
1: This album, when I first heard it, I was like, oof, this is heavy. I haven't really heard music like this before. I I didn't quite know how to process it all. It, w- it was a lot for me, but it was haunting and catchy in its own way. I hate to use that word. It, that seems like the wrong word. But it is it was, catchy, though. Like She has a good musical flow, yeah. <laughs> and there was just like an ache to it. I was very intrigued by it. I wanted to know more about her. And she seemed kind of like this mystical, mythical. She was just this artist that I felt like I can relate, but I can't relate. Like she's close to me, but so far away. Yeah. I think that that's accurate.
0: Like I was not as interested in her as an artist as I was in her music. Like I feel like I spent a lot of time with this album and that it was at a really challenging time in my life. And I felt, this term did not exist then, but I felt very seen by Uh this music. And it was really reassuring in a way that I don't know any music had been in my life up until that point. Mm -hmm. Tori Amos made me feel like, oh, someone else has gone through this Mm -hmm. painful angst that I'm going through and can write about it and can sort of show me a path And so it was really reassuring. And I think, I don't know that I even really had much thought about her persona as an artist until I saw her live quite a few years later.
1: You were talking about having this album on cassette. I didn't have it on cassette. I had it on CD. And this was in my heavy rotation, maybe about four years later when I was in college. And I actually have the CD with me right now. The jewel case is just beat to shreds. This album was released when she was 29, and she had lived a lot of life in those 29 years, and she had a lot to say, and I was listening, but it took me a few years to get there.
0: Yeah, I was an early adopter, um, and, and I, but I think that that is part of, too, depending on where people are at when they come to her music, because it is heavier, and there is a lot of depth to it. Yeah. And what I noticed as I was listening for the podcast, right, because you approach things a little differently for the podcast than you do just casually listening in real life. And this is an album that I still have, you know, on my phone. I listen to it frequently. But when I sat down and I was watching the videos, I was like, oh, this is this is not how I experience this music, watching a video, seeing images. Paying super close attention to the lyrics, like that's not my experience of it. My experience of it is much broader. It's much more. It evokes feelings in me, and it's a whole sort of experience in a way that other music isn't. And I think that that is really one of the amazing gifts that Tori Amos brings to music and her albums.
1: I almost pick up different things every time I listen to this album, which is always such a. It's such a treasure. When you can find an album that kind of just keeps giving back to you in different ways, I feel like it's just riddled with hidden gems. And I feel like that's really what makes this album so special. It's almost what makes this album magic. Yeah. As I was trying to watch the videos, which I i mean, I watched
0: them, but I it was hard for me to focus on them. And I thought, you know, this is her music is much more like looking at an abstract piece of art. And you can't say like, Oh, this part leads to this part leads to this part. And that's why I like it so much. It's just more that the whole piece all together brings out a feeling for you or for me. And, and you're right. Like, Just like looking at a piece of abstract art, one part of it might jump out at you one day and the next day a different part will jump out at you. So it's, I mean, she really is an artist, I think, in the truest
1: sense of the word. Oh, most definitely. And she has a really interesting history. So she was born Myra Ellen, quote, Tori, that's her nickname, Amos, on August 22nd, 1963. She's a Leo. Makes her a proud Gen Xer. (laughs) She was born in North Carolina, and from a very young age, she was musically gifted. She was awarded a scholarship to Baltimore's prestigious Peabody Conservatory at age five. Okay, like at age five, I wasn't doing shit. Right, like like, at age five,
0: I was getting in (laughs) trouble because I refused to color inside the lines on my
1: drawings. But doesn't that say so much, Katie? (laughs) (laughs) And she was expelled at 11 for what Rolling Stone called, quote, musical insubordination. So she was playing by her own rules from a very young age. Right. She was fiery from the start. And after that, she started playing in piano bars as a teen, like as a young teen, like at 13, 14, she was playing in piano bars.
0: Did I read that like, um, her, like her dad would take her around and like ask if she could play at bars and... And she got turned away a lot, but then it was a gay bar, wasn't it? That finally said yes.
1: I know that she played some gay bars, which was very interesting because her father was a Methodist minister.
0: Oh, right. And he
1: got a lot of pushback from people
0: for letting her play in gay bars.
1: And he, you know, had his own feelings about homosexuality that I think he came to, I don't want to say like change his mind, but have a more open view once Tori was successful and she had a lot of gay musicians and fans and, you know, people on her staff. And I think he maybe had a different opinion later in life. She writes a lot about like paradox, right? That that's mm-hmm. a big, it's a big theme in her music. And I think that it was that way because there was just a lot of contradiction in her life, a lot of conflicting thoughts and feelings and i think she really like lived those experiences and I, I think part of this was kind of challenging for her dad as well yeah i'm
0: sure the experiences that you go through having a daughter with this much energy and this much talent and this much sort of i'm going to do my own thing you know i'm not going to be
1: boxed in that's a theme throughout her album and okay so when she was young she was like i need to get out of north carolina i need to break free so she moved to L.A. to try to make it as a singer and songwriter. And <laughs> she had struggles. Like, this did not happen easily for her. These were just a few of the experiences she had, Katie. They're pretty wild. <laughs> so she, quote, couldn't quite get it together to audition as a keyboard player for Billy Idol. That was one <laughs> thing. She beat out Sarah Jessica Parker for a cornflakes commercial. <laughs> you can find Tori Amos's... Cornflakes commercial on YouTube. I highly recommend it. <laughs> she worked as an extra on a Crystal Light commercial with Raquel Welch. <laughs> and Raquel Welch was like, told the director, You need to tell that girl in the background to tone her shit down. She needs to tone <laughs> it, down to it down. She is enough. not the star of the Crystal Light commercial. <laughs> <laughs> I am. <laughs> And she was sneered at by the casting director of Howard the Duck. She had auditioned.
0: I mean, in (laughs) retrospect, I'm going to say being sneered at by the casting director of (laughs) Howard the Duck, probably something you want
1: to feel proud about. So we were talking about this, you know, Tori Amos was up for the role of Rita in Groundhog Day. And we were like, oh, we don't really see Tori Amos as like a leading lady opposite Bill Murray in a film. But I mean, she had some acting chops. She was out there trying to make it in a variety of capacities. So,
0: I feel glad, though, that she made it as a singer and a songwriter because I think that much like Ms. Raquel Welch, that Hollywood would have tried to really hem her in and would have really tried to put her into a box that probably she didn't have been happy in and it wouldn't have displayed the true talents that she has. I
1: agree. And she also worked as a lounge singer at the downtown LA Sheraton. And during that time, she was also submitting music to artists such as Cher and Tina Turner, and they were rejected. The songs were rejected.
0: I know that these are not fun experiences for people to go through on their way to success. But I think it's so important to talk about them because sometimes things feel horrible, right? You feel like you're never going to be successful. And I think it's important to know that everyone goes through this and that the reason that those things were rejected was because there were better things for her out there. If she had spent her life as Billy Idol's keyboard player, Mm -hmm. like, you know, that was not the best use of her talent.
1: No, certainly. And so she actually formed a pop synth band called Why Can't Tori Read? And they only played one live show. They did put out an album, which from what I've read is like wiped from the face of the earth. You can find find a few copies of it out there but like they go for a lot of money they're very impressive
0: in this day and age where you can find
1: almost anything online (laughs) right so the band was not successful they didn't do well they were just the reviews of their music were terrible and tori told rolling stone i cried constantly i was on my knees from child prodigy to musical joke in 20 years How do you reconcile that? So I went back to the fairy world. And this is a big thing with Tori. On most of her albums, she thanks the fairies. Like she believes in a very mythical world and she believes in muses and fairies and she believes that they help her create. And so it's a big part of her creative process that she's always in tune with the fairies. And I've read interviews with her where she said, One of the saddest parts about growing up is that we lose touch with the make-believe world. And that was a really, really big part of her life growing up. And so she's tried as an adult and an artist to maintain that connection to imagination and all the things that bring her inspiration so she can create in the vein that is most expressive of her. And I think if
0: you've ever seen her live or you've seen a recording of a live performance, she really talks about her songs like they're their own sort of creatures, you know, and she'll she'll have a, a set list. And then... All of a sudden, she'll be like, oh, nope, this one wants to come out to play. So we're going to do this one instead. And so she really interacts with her songs like they have their own spirit and their own energy, sort of independent of her. And so that definitely comes across. And I think I do feel a little bit like, She's a little beyond my grasp. Like I think she's amazing and cool and awesome. And I also am like, I don't fully understand her, which is fine. Like I'm fine with it. And I think it's great. Her music very much speaks to me. But sometimes when I like hear her speaking, I'm like, huh, she's different than me. And that's cool. Difference is great, but it is interesting.
1: It's like the songs go into her and she is simply the vehicle. And not that these songs belong to her, but they are freestanding. Right, that it sort of comes She's the instrument. Yeah, right, exactly. Right.
0: I appreciate that in the culture that we kind of have created around pop stars and things like that, that she has retained her individual qualities and that she hasn't, you know, I mean, I don't know if she's felt pressured, but that she doesn't seem to have bowed to the pressure to, you know, do what's asked of her.
1: Especially at a time where a few years later, you know, There was the whole female singer-songwriter movement that came in. And this was a little bit later. Like when Little Earthquakes was released, I've read interviews with Tori where she said, you know, people weren't really doing this. Like Elton John could do it. Billy Joel could do it. But there wasn't really a big space for women and a piano.
0: No, and there wasn't really a big space for women who fell outside of sort of the general pop music, you know? Yes. Because I was trying to think about that. I was thinking about how real her songs felt and meaningful Mm -hmm. and and who up until that point had really had that kind of music. And I couldn't, there hadn't been an influence in my world. I'm sure there were people who listened to way cooler music than I did when I was 16,
1: (laughs) Um, you know, and, and that those voices were out there, but they weren't mainstream, no, they weren't. And you know, when I was in college, I was I was obsessed with Jewel. You know this. You yeah. and I went to Lilith. We saw Sarah McLaughlin and Jewel and Tracy Chapman and Paula Cole. It was a really cool time in music, but Tori was before that. Right. And Tori was never part of Lilith. And she actually talked to Rolling Stone about the Lilith movement. And she said, Well, I would have a good bottle of wine with Sarah McLaughlin, who, of course, is Lilith Fair's founder. She said, I'd have a good bottle of wine with Sarah any night of the week, but my shows are theater, and I've worked a long time to get them to this point. This isn't just about eating some chicken (laughs) and hearing a few of your favorite female singers. You walk into my show, you walk into a world. It's a film every night. I can't impose that on Lilith and vice versa.
0: And I would agree as we all know, folk music is my jam. Mm -hmm. And typically, when you go see a folk singer, they like come out on stage, there's a stool, they have their guitar, they might have some other artists that come and back them up at certain Mm -hmm. points in their set. But mostly, it's just kind of them and the stage and their guitar. And that is not what a Tori Amos concert Mm -hmm. is like. And so there are just artists that don't necessarily fit into that groove. And I think, yeah, I don't, I don't, I don't think it would have been a good fit for her to be at Lola. I don't either.
1: So in terms of Little Earthquakes, her label Atlantic Records, actually they heard the music and they wanted to replace the piano with guitar on the Hmm. album. Like, can you imagine what a different album that would have been? And does she even play guitar? I don't think she does. Were they no, just going to have like her be a singer? Yeah, I think yeah. so. No, it would have been, ugh, no. And she actually had to like fight the fight on that. And she even had to go so far as like bluff that another label was interested in her and that like she was going to go if she couldn't get it her way. Good for her. Yeah, and she said like, I made that vow to myself. She's talking about staying true to her creative vision and like keeping the piano in the songs that she wrote. She, She said, I made that vow to myself before I knew what that response was going to be. And I think that was the turning point. And I think that's what people felt from the record. That record helped me. The muses helped me, but they also made it clear that they were channeling certain things and I was going through certain things. So I had empathy. So I could understand it and hold that energy and then write with it. So I just feel like between the failure of why can't Tori read and then having to then go on to prove herself to a record company when she was maybe not feeling so secure in her ability at that time to say, no, it's got to be this way, even though I wasn't successful in the past. Right.
0: And even though probably she really wanted that deal. Right. Oh my goodness, of course. That's when you really know what matters to you when it when the stakes are really
1: high and you stick to your guns. And she did. And the album was actually recorded in analog format. Co-producer David Sigerson said, quite frankly, because it was cheaper. (laughs) And co-producer Eric Ross noted, we only had a budget of six thousand dollars. So this album really is a masterpiece. It was her debut solo album, which was released on January 6th, 1992 to generally positive reviews. Finn Magazine said at the time, Little Earthquakes was a voice of understanding and empathy Gen Xers were starving for. I would agree. (laughs) I feel like it was like the thing we needed and maybe didn't know it.
0: Yeah, I, I couldn't, I would never have been like, this is what I need, but it was, I needed somebody who was going to sing about real things in sort of a raw, open way and not gloss over it with like a happy little pop beat, you know? Yeah. I mean, even though her music is beautiful and even though it's catchy, as I said, like it, it, it does it in a really authentic way.
1: It does. I mean, even when you listen to the album and you think of the song, like happy phantom, Mm-hmm. It's a little ditty, but like the subject matter is very dark. Right. <laughs> yeah. And you're just like, oh. Uh, oh. Yeah. <laughs> you listen to it and you're like, oh, I'm kind of bopping along to this thing. And you're like, oh my God, what is this about? Right. What are we talking about here? We're talking oh. about like, oh, I'm going to be so happy once I die. Right. BBC Music said of the album, quote, she was causing mighty tremors with tender tiptoes. I love that. Yeah. Very true. Yeah, and Joseph Woodward of Rolling Stone described the album as an often pretty, subtly, progressive song cycle that reflects darkly on sexual alienation and personal struggles. And he said that by the end of the album, quote, we feel as though we've been through some peculiar therapy session, half cleansed and half stirred. That artful paradox is part of what makes Little Earthquakes a gripping debut.
0: Yeah, I think it was not like anything we'd heard before, really. And I don't, I would also argue, not like anything we've heard much of since. It's, I think she's very unique in what she brings to music. Mm
1: -hmm. Yeah. And the album was successful. It peaked at number 54 on the Billboard Top 200 and it went platinum two times. And I told you, I have the CD here. It's all just beaten up. And I'm looking at the liner notes and we see the picture, of course, the iconic picture on the cover of Tori Amos in a box. And this was photographed by British photographer, Cindy Palmano, who also directed all four music videos for this album.
0: In which boxes figure prominently. (laughs)
1: Exactly, they do. And of course, on the back of the album, the cover art is the very phallic mushrooms. And the style of the cover art And uh, many of the videos, they were inspired by Lewis Carroll. And (laughs) she said, we were really into the Alice in Wonderland idea. We wanted to work with differences in scale, the shrunken piano, the big mushrooms, male, massive, girl in her box. We thought that was quite good fun.
0: (laughs) I can't picture the back of the album because- Let me show it to you on Zoom. Oh, yeah. Yeah, that's phallic. Um.
1: <laughs> There's so, some serious penises on the back of this album. And- yeah. Okay, so should we get into the singles? Yes, let's do that. Okay, let's start with Crucify. Crucify was the fifth single, and it reached number 22 on U.S. Billboard's Alternative Airplay Charts. What would you think of the video? What were your first impressions? Uh
0: <laughs> This is the note that I wrote. This video was either really fun to make or miserably cold and wet. (laughs) And maybe it
1: was both. (laughs) So, I mean, basically without getting into too many details, we see Tori in a white sheet. We see some chains. We see some water. We see Tori in a blue velvet jumpsuit, which is actually worth talking about it just from a fashion perspective for a second. It's a halter and it's got this like flare leg. It's a look. Okay. I literally just watched this video this morning. <laughs> I mean, Katie, it's like blue velvet jumpsuit. Like, and and the piano is white. The background is white. It's like, it's the only color, oh, that and oh, her okay. red
0: hair. I'm sorry. You know what? I don't know what I was. I think I was picturing a romper when you said jumpsuit. And like, that's not what she had on. You could call it a romper,
1: can't you? It's one piece. Okay. Anyway. And she was wearing that lipstick, that kind of brownie. We used to wear this lipstick in high school. It was called Toasted Almond. It was kind of like a brown lipstick that was very popular in the 90s. And so with like her very fair skin and her, you know, fire red, almost orange hair Mm -hmm. and that blue, it's just the colors are very striking Yeah. And there's a point in this video where she's wearing a black satin sleeveless dress and she's in the dark and then there's again a white background and then we see her in a blue sleeveless collar dress that looked very Alice in Wonderland. So that kind of goes with that Lewis Carroll theme. Right. Well, and I, I found it
0: interesting
1: because under
0: that is this sort of sheer red. Yes. Like lip like material that hangs quite a bit below the hem of the blue dress. And I was like, oh, is this a statement about how like there's sort of the innocence or the sort of uh what's the word that I'm looking for? Like properness of the blue like colored dress. Mm-hmm. And, then and then the this red sort of redness underneath it. And which I don't, that's what I applied it to like, and it, and it seems very Tory, right. To kind of be like, to highlight that duality that is present in. That's what I thought too. I actually
1: Googled it and I couldn't find a good answer to it. We have provided the answer. There's your answer. (laughs) Okay. We shall be the source. (laughs) (laughs) And then we see that white clawfoot bathtub against the black background and like just water, like crazy water dumps from above into the, bathtub in this like massive splash and then Tori gets into the tub and you know she's singing and she's wet and so apparently Cindy Palmano the director of this video she didn't get to finish the video because Atlantic Records wanted to quote edit it in a different way but Cindy did say that she really likes the bathtub sequence and she said I like when she steps into the bath and comes out of the bath it all looks really Hitchcock and I love it And the YouTube video has over 4.6 million views. And I love some of the comments that people left here. There was one where someone said, Tori made me a beast of a teen girl, a war, a rampage. Thank you. And I love that. And then another person said, some of your songs are my best friends.
0: Yeah, you know, I feel like this album carried me through a lot of hard times. And it's often an album that I go back to when I'm like, feeling a lot. I have a lot of emotions going on and I'm writing in my journal and I have candles lit and incense burning and like this album playing, like that is the companion that this album has been for me or some of her other albums as well. Like her music just sort of sets that tone for like letting all of that out and being okay with it and and being whoever you are. So yeah, I get that.
1: I mean, lyrically, Did you pay close attention to the lyrics of this song? Is there anything that stands out at you? So I saw your note about (laughs) about the cat. Do I have a
0: note? You have a a note about a cat named Easter, which is really funny because I I didn't know that the first part of it was, I know a cat named Easter. I thought she was saying, I have a cat named Easter. So I'm just always picturing her like having this conversation with her cat named
1: Easter. I think maybe but I thought it actually that actually makes way more sense. <laughs> yeah. Like, so apparently the lyric, I know a cat named Easter, he says, will you ever learn? It's about her conversations with God.
0: Yeah. And that theme kind of carries through in a couple of songs on this album yeah. where you can sort of see this. And I don't think I knew when I was younger that her dad had been a pastor. Mm-hmm. This kind of pull of I was raised in religion and I sort of. Turned away from it. And what has that experience been like? And
1: when does that come back into my world? The lyric that says, Every day I crucify myself, nothing I do is good enough for you. We are the hardest on ourselves, right? And we're often, we grow up often wondering why we can't be what other people want us to be. And we try, and we try, I think, for a really long time. I hope that each one of us at some point and, and it you know it's a different timeline for everyone where you reach a point where you're like, and I'm done. Enough. I just can't. I can't be what you and society and the world and my parents and whoever, you know, wherever this is coming from, I can't be that. I have to be who I am.
0: I feel like that is
1: the gift of being a woman in her 40s. And Oh, amen. Hallelujah. I believe that this is really, really when that becomes more true than ever. I mean, this album was released when she was 29. I think she's asking these questions, but I don't even know that Tori at this point had reached that level of confidence. Right. No, I
0: think she's, you know, like you said, like she's kind of channeling these ideas. Yeah. but. And I think that there was something in me in my younger years that recognized them. But I don't think until I got older that the message really like hit me in quite the same way. And I always feel like, why is it just that younger people don't care? And that's probably totally possible. I probably didn't care what was happening to women in their forties when I was in my twenties, but I'm like, I always feel like I looked at being 40 as like, oh, it's so old and you're over the hill. And my experience of being a woman in her 40s is is that it's so much better than being a woman in my 20s.
1: Without a doubt, when people are like, oh, I wish I could go back. I'm like, really? Because I really don't. I mean, I I think... I think my forehead wrinkles and my, you know, beginning jowls are starting to wish that I could go back, you know, (laughs) just literally from a purely like from a vanity perspective. But I would never want to go back to all that uncertainty and all those questions. And like, I just used to give so many fucks about things, you know, like
0: I give way fewer fucks. I'm like, oh, you don't like me? Sorry. Bye. Not
1: for everyone. I'm not for everyone. <laughs>
0: right? No. I have a friend that has a shirt that says that I'm not for everyone, yeah. and it's true. And for some reason, in most people's, or at least most women's younger years, they really spend a lot of energy trying to be for everyone. And um, if you are younger and you are listening to this, if you are a millennial, I just want to say, like, don't be for everybody. Be for yourself.
1: I felt like listening to this very intentionally, I was just like, yes. And I don't know that I felt that way. I just kind of thought it was a jam when I was younger. I was like, yeah, yeah. Why? Why do we crucify ourselves? But now I listen to it and I'm like, I feel something so different. It just cuts me to the core. And I believe the words that she's singing. Yeah. I think that that I listened
0: to that song probably the most. Uh, it might've been the first song on the tape, which might explain why I listened
1: to it. Well, I can tell (laughs) you, I have it right here. It is, it is track
0: one. Yeah. So, you know, you couldn't like shuffle things or like hop (laughs) around. So like probably, you know, if I got in the car and that was the first thing on, like that was just (laughs) fun. But I also think that it spoke to me because I think that I was going through a really challenging time and I was going through a time of, um, And I mean, maybe everyone goes through this to a point at that age, but of finding where I was in sort of the world I was raised in and finding that I was quite different than the world that I was raised in and feeling alone in that. And so this kind of gave me a sense of, oh, there's other people like me and like, she's pretty cool. I could be like her.
1: Yeah. And I I feel like maybe at that time I saw it more as like an anthem for black sheep for anyone that has ever felt like they didn't quite belong in their present circumstances. But now I really do see it more as like an anthem for womanhood, honestly. Right. It's a great song
0: and it brought me a lot of comfort in my younger years when I was struggling. So yeah.
1: I will be forever grateful for that. Thank you, Tori. Maybe this song is one of your best friends. Like
0: that it, I mean, song. it really was like, yeah. I can remember like driving around with this album in my car and just, I don't know, it was a safe place
1: for me to be. Yeah.
0: This music was around me. And so.
1: And particularly like when I think about that time Being kind of a new driver and listening to music on tapes in your car. And you had this level of freedom that you didn't have before. And so when you're playing music like this, that's really speaking to you. And it's actually allowing you to be free in your emotion and feel these things that are maybe too uncomfortable to talk about or share with people. And you're just driving and it's you and your solitude and your freedom That's so powerful. I know it sounds maybe a little bit hokey, but this is why music like this is like true soundtrack to your life, right? When there's a song that really speaks to you in a way and you're like, I remember driving, listening to this song. I remember exactly where I was. I remember exactly what I was feeling.
0: Yeah. And I think this very much coincided with me being 16 and being able to drive Uh and, and have kind of my own space. And So I think it also just gave me space to kind of feel these feelings and have that be okay and have that freedom and have the freedom to sort of have new ideas um, and the space to explore them. So, yeah, yeah, very much coincides
1: with that experience. So, okay. Silent All These Years was the second single and it reached number 2 on the US Billboard Modern Rock Tracks. And interestingly, the song's melody was originally written for Al Stewart. Um I don't know if you know much about Al Stewart, I but don't. he <laughs> he's probably most famous for the song The Year of the Cat, which actually I know all the words to. I'm very proud to say. And she had written a couple other songs for him in the past. But the lyrics were inspired by Hans Christian Andersen's The Little Mermaid. And that was a story that she used to read to her little niece back in the day. Mm -hmm. And the song also was later used to promote awareness for Rain, the Rape, Abuse, and Incest National Network. And she was their first national spokesperson. She was, yeah. So we'll get into her experience with sexual abuse. Uh, when we get to me and a gun, but right now, silent all these years, what were your thoughts on the video?
0: Like she's in a box, right? For much of
1: the video, she's sort of struggling in a box and. Yeah. I mean, this was her first music video. This was the first one she ever shot and it was shot over two days. What's interesting too, like I did notice in a couple of Tori's videos They kind of have like that grainy effect that make Mm -hmm. them almost look like, almost like they're pictures in a book, like an old book. I get that feeling. Yeah. And there's kind of that weird, I don't know what that that video effect is called. It's almost as if you're looking at pictures in an old book and you're thumbing them with your, like a flip book. Yeah. That's the impression that I got. Yeah. There is a little girl in a white dress that appears throughout the video who I think is supposed to be like a young tory no right right yeah. yeah no i think so yeah and um there's a point though that we see a hanger with false breasts did you catch that I feel really bad as we're going through this. Cause I'm like, Oh, I feel like I'm not helpful.
0: I don't, I, I did not watch these videos when mm-hmm. I was younger. Like yeah. they weren't part of my experience of her music. And so it, I almost feel like. Like it was know, a distraction to you. Yeah. Like I couldn't focus on it. It was really hard yeah. nice for me to pay attention.
1: So, there's a scene where there's a hanger and I actually had to look up what these were. They were false breasts hanging over like the neck of the hanger And these look different than any like cutlet situation that we all wear today, you know, when you need to fill out a a dress or something, they look different, but they were false breasts. And then there's also a shot of honey dripping. And I think it's just all about sexuality and coming of age. And I can tell you that this video was nominated for breakthrough video. It lost to red hot chili peppers. Give it away. Mm. Uh, It was nominated for Best Cinematography. It lost to Guns N' Roses' November Rain, which was a pretty epic video. Yeah, that's a tough competition. She was nominated for Best New Artist in a Video. She lost to Nirvana and Smells Like Teen Spirit. Mm, Yeah. And she was also nominated for Best Female Video, and she lost to Annie Lennox' Why. But Rolling Stone Magazine lists this video at number 98 of the 100 greatest videos of all time.
0: I mean, I did not love this song when I was younger. I didn't hate it. I loved, I mean, the whole album I enjoyed, but this Uh song didn't necessarily speak to me that much when I was younger. But then revisiting it when I was older, I was
1: like, oh yes, yes, the song. (laughs) There's so much here. There's so much in this song. And if you look at... YouTube comments. They're very powerful. I mean, one person wrote, This song reminds me of all the years I was in an abusive relationship. She got me through it. Silent all those years. Another user said, this song was the first song that I felt expressed how I felt all the silence, all the secrets. So lyrically, what speaks to you here?
0: One of my all-time favorite lines is So, you found a girl who thinks really deep thoughts. Yeah,
1: I've thought about this lyric many times. What's so great
0: about really deep thoughts? Boy, you best pray that I bleed real soon. How's that thought for you? Yeah. Like, it just, it's so. It punches
1: you in the gut.
0: Yeah. And it, yeah, it's just, I just have always, that line has always stood out for me. Part of it was when I was younger, and I kind of first put it together, and was like, "Oh, <laughs> you know." Right. Um, but also just the, just how it is sometimes with men who want to make you feel less than you are, you know, and to just have that, you know, idea of like, I don't know, it, it, it just the power in that line seems significant.
1: Yeah. And for me, I think the one aside from that lyric, when she says, hey, but I don't care because sometimes I hear my voice. It's been here silent all these years. It's like, even if you didn't have the safe space or the confidence or the energy for whatever reason to speak your truth, it doesn't mean that it wasn't always there. You've been quiet, but it's always been with you. And that's incredibly powerful to me. Right, that it's patient and it will wait.
0: It will wait until it can be heard. And similarly, on that theme of silence, I also really like the line of "My scream got lost in a paper cup." Yeah, I think there's a heaven where some screams screams have gone. Yeah, Uh, because I I certainly could
1: relate to that a lot. Yeah, and when you said like that, voice is patient until it can finally be spoken. I feel like once it's finally spoken, it's a scream. It has a lot to say. (laughs) It has a lot to say. I don't think it's a whisper anymore. And I think that's really where taking control back and no longer being afraid. I feel like that's when those themes really come to fruition.
0: Right. And I'm ready to say it. Yeah. Whatever the consequences may be. So, and, and that time is different for everybody. It comes to everybody at different
1: times. And for some people, I think it never comes. China. I had never seen this video, I'll be honest with you. I haven't either. China was the third single, and it was originally titled Distance. It peaked at 51 in the UK singles charts, but it didn't reach the charts in the US. The video was interesting. I mean, I was certainly entertained by it. At some point, Tori is playing a rock piano. Right, yeah, which is super cool. (laughs) Yeah, it was like visually very interesting and um, just a lot of stones. And basically it's a song about lost love and particularly I think like the last moments before you know a relationship is over. You know, she uses China to describe a place of being very far away. But then throughout the video, we also see broken pieces of China. And China, of course, is also, it also represents marriage right like oh getting married you get fine china it's this fragile beautiful thing and then there's cracks in the china there's cracks in the relationship i feel like the lyric that really got me was when she said in your eyes i saw a future together you just look away in the distance china decorates our table funny how the cracks don't seem to show and then she says pour the wine dear you say we'll take a holiday but we can never agree on where to go And isn't that what it is? Like to be in a relationship that's cracking and it's like you feel so far away to the person who's right next to you. Like they might as well be in China and you in New York because that's how far away you feel even though you're together. And it's this idea that like from the outside, everything looks okay. And then it's like these feeble attempts to like, make it better. Like, okay, well, let's go on vacation. Let's have a romantic getaway. And then you can't even get to the point where you do that because you can't even agree on where to go. Right. That breaks my heart. Yeah. I feel like there's no greater
0: distance than the distance between two people sitting next to each
1: other who can't find each other. And then she says, I can feel the distance getting close, meaning like it's near the end. Right. And that that's always the part
0: of relationships ending that seems so weird to me is that you go from having somebody in your life day in and day out, you're part of each other's worlds, and then all of a sudden you like go in these different directions and you each have your own world and your world continues on and their world continues on, and you're not and you're strangers now. And It's just, it's the weirdest thing. And I like, I still think about it sometimes with people that, you know, I've been close to in the past and how like, we're essentially just strangers now. And there's this vast distance between us. The hard part of saying goodbye is sort of saying goodbye to the parts of you that this person has taken and can't give back.
1: And they had a piece of your heart. They had a piece of your soul. They had a piece of your time here on earth, your limited precious time. And the person that you are
0: when you're with them is a little different than the person that you are when you're with anybody else. And so when they go away, there might be parts of that person left, but that whole person isn't quite there anymore. That's always been my experience of it. Oh
1: my God, that's heavy. I feel like I need a drink. That like, (laughs) Yeah. yeah. So just to lighten things a little bit <laughs> on the video, there's a YouTube user who said, This was cute. Every time I go to the beach, I lift up rocks, hoping to find a Tori. No luck so far. <laughs> <laughs> That's cute. Yeah. So Winter. Yes. Winter was the fourth single. It reached 25, number 25 on the US singles charts. Tori explained in her 98 vh1 storytellers special which by the way i don't have vh1 anymore but i used to live for vh1 storytellers (laughs) she explained that the song was inspired by a conversation with her father she said quote i was telling him how bad i felt because the first album and she's referring to why can't tori read being so bad and he said to me he'd never said it before quote tori ellen when are you going to accept that you are good enough for you she was asked by NPR what her favorite lyric to sing was. And she said, I guess it's the line from winter. When you going to make up your mind, when you going to love you as much as I do. I think that one.
0: I have to say this line fairly recently, like within the last couple of years, I was in my car (laughs) uh, listening to this album and it was like this lyric just jumped out of the song and spoke to me. Like, oh. I was like, oh, yeah, like
1: when, when, <laughs> if not now, when? <laughs> She did say that the meaning of the song is like sort of ever changing for her. She said, The song allows me the space to have my perception of it as I go through my changes. And yet I still hold the integrity of a girl and her father when that song enters my body in live performance. This is actually what we were talking about how, like, the songs inhabit her. Mm -hmm. Yeah, it's a beautiful song. And a lot of like the YouTube comments were like, Oh, this song, I. I miss my dad. This song makes me think of my dad. And they really hold on to that father-daughter connection of the song. But really, someone who loves you unconditionally saying to you, when are you going to love yourself enough? Who among us hasn't felt like, I'm not good enough. I'm pretending to be this person.
0: Right. And I think that that message comes through her music a lot is that you don't have to be good enough for anyone else. You only have to be good enough for you. And I think sometimes we've spent so much of our lives trying to be good enough for everyone else that we don't even
1: know what's good enough for us. Yeah. And all the white horses that she references throughout the lyrics, I read somewhere, and I don't have a quote here, but that the white horses were meant to represent dreams. Mm Mm-hmm. So we often, as we age or get saddled with responsibility, sort of let those things go because it, they don't feel right anymore or they feel frivolous. That, so that's,
0: I think what's interesting is that you, like, I have spent a lot of my life feeling like I have to defend the choices that I've made, right. Or the things yeah. that I want or the things that make me happy. And it's like, no, you don't, you just, it's okay. Liking something, wanting something because you like it and you want it is enough.
1: And as far as the video goes, we don't need to go into too much detail about it, but like we see a lot of kids in the video and we see Tori, like a more sort of playful side to Tori. There's a point where she's dancing with the kids. And and I think it's just like sort of a gentle whisper of a reminder to get back to the person that you were, like your truest self before you questioned everything, before the doubts and fears of the world set in. Right, to come home to yourself. That's a much better phrase. (laughs) And interestingly, a lot of the comments on the video were people saying, I'm here because of Mick Foley. And I'm like, who's Mick Foley? Mick Mankind Foley was a former WWE wrestler and he listened to this song Winter in preparation of his barbed wire match in Japan he said quote looking back that match in Hanjo is probably the performance i'm proudest of in my whole career perhaps it would have been a great match without Winter but i doubt i'd still be thinking about it 15 years later and he said that and a lot of WWE fans came to Tori's music from him and I love the paradox of that. That is fascinating. <laughs> These tough wrestlers with this like super soft side. Right. However, you come to Tori, we honor it. Right.
0: Welcome. We're happy you're yes. here.
1: This like big, burly man preparing for a fight. Listen. For a
0: barbed wire match? Is that what it sounds like? I don't
1: know. Like, I'm
0: picturing that like the ropes on the. Are barbed wire? I don't know. I mean, that's. Oh, my God. Can
1: you imagine?
0: I got poked once with barbed wire. It is not a pleasant. Were you
1: trying to escape a prison? (laughs) What happened?
0: No, I was jumping a fence. (gasps) Things that I should not have been doing
1: in my youth. (laughs) Oh man, you know what, you guys? She's gonna totally text me later and be like, take that part. I was just thinking,
0: I'm like, I should just (laughs) stop talking.
1: Leave this out. All right.
0: (laughs) And I'm just impressed that I was able to do it, to be totally honest. Like, I'm I'm not the kind of girl to scale fences. So um, I'm quite proud of myself. Like you're no
1: Mick Foley. No, no, (laughs) I'm not. So, okay. So this is the part of the podcast where we talk about me and a gun. And I'm going to let you take the lead on this one because- And
0: again, in case you jumped in and missed the content note in the beginning, uh, the subject matter does deal with sexual assault. So when I first heard the song on the album, I didn't know what to think. I had never heard a song like this in my life.
1: Have you heard a song like this since? Because I have not.
0: No, I guess that's true. Not quite like this. And I think that it was part of what really drew me to her album and her music and her as an artist was that I'd never heard someone be this honest and also like hauntingly lyrical at the same time, but just really raw and open. And
1: not afraid to say hard things. And the song is acapella. I think that lends itself to even, I mean, the entire album is just, you know, it's like Tori on a piano and musically it's beautiful. So orchestrated. And this is simply her voice. Right. And that's it.
0: And it's really powerful. And I think that it really describes what happens when people are going through a traumatic event and how your brain does whatever it can to protect you in that moment. And if that means, you know, that you're thinking about other things and other places Mm -hmm. that you kind of do what you
1: have to do to get through it. To survive. And specifically, this is a, this is her personal and harrowing account of her rape at 21 years old in Los Angeles when she was playing piano bars. Yeah. Yeah. According to Entertainment Weekly, the song was intended to be the first single from the album, but, quote, it turned out to be too scary for radio. And they go on to say, Me and a Gun is the strangest, most bracing, most shocking moment on an album full of them. I would agree with that. Yeah, I would too. The New Yorker said, Me and a Gun from Little Earthquakes is a frank, harrowing, and autobiographical account of violent rape, one of the first songs directly addressing sexual assault to reach a wide audience. And I feel like that was such an important moment in music, It was the moment that Tori said what all the survivors have experienced. Like she said it out loud. She put it on an album, on a successful album. She wasn't afraid of it. She didn't make it pretty. There wasn't any fluff added to it to soften it. Brutally open and honest. Very raw. And what I found out about this song was she said, quote, I went to see Thelma and Louise alone on a whim. And my life changed when Susan Sarandon killed the would-be rapist. I breathed for the first time in seven years, and two hours later, she wrote the song.
0: Yeah, I, and I think the power of that experience coming back to her and then her channeling it into a song is palpable. You can feel it, and I think that it speaks for people. And you know, the thing when I was going back and listening to it that really stuck out to me and and made me sad was, yes, I wore a slinky red thing. Does that mean I should spread for you, your friends, your father, Mr. Ed? And like this is still a narrative that happens. It doesn't matter. It doesn't matter what someone's wearing. It doesn't give anyone a right to violate anybody. And so I think she really gave voice to that in this song. And the reaction that people have is really powerful. A lot of good has come from her sharing this song.
1: Yeah, in a 2020 interview for Spin, writer Liza Lentini says, quote, I tell her one friend remarked, she is one of the reasons I'm still here. Tori responds with utter humility, quote, when people say this to me, I say to them, you saved your own life. What the music did was to be there and whatever talisman it carried for you, then you choose to utilize and channel the strength of it or whatever it was giving you to then empower yourself. I feel like the muses made it really clear to me because Little Earthquakes was written in order to write myself out of hell because I had to. That was the only way out. I tried everything else and nothing was working. So, I mean, I know a lot of survivors reach out to Tori and tell her, your bravery, your willingness, your voice gave me the strength to have my own. You saved me. And she's the first person to say, nope, the music was there for you. You saved yourself which is really powerful. It is powerful. On the official videos for this so I mean there there weren't videos. They have the song that you can play like on a YouTube video. Mm-hmm. And they have two of them, one on the 2015 reissue and then um the original. And the YouTube comments are turned off by design, but like there's plenty of people that have posted the song with lyrics. And the comments are so powerful. One person wrote, Thank you, Tori, for being so brave and articulate to put into words the unimaginable, unthinkable, unspeakable horrors that I kept silenced all these years. And another person said, I always come back to this song when I need it. Thanks, Tori. It's gutting. And I think it's extra gutting
0: to know that this is so common. I know. And to know that so many people have had Mm to go through this. Mm -hmm. And one of the things that came from this song was that Tori really became a spokesperson for the Rain Network Mm -hmm. and really gave it a voice. And she did it because somebody came to her with a horrible story and she couldn't help. She wanted to be able to help more and she couldn't. And so she decided that she needed to help. And so she was put in contact with the person that was creating the Rain Network, and worked with them so that they could make. Because before, so if you're not familiar with it, it's Rain R A I N N dot org, and it's the national national sexual assault hotline and. Until this existed, there was not a central resource for people to call if they needed help. And so they might be able to call like their local place. But what this does is that you can call one number and then they will get you to somebody to talk to who can connect you with local resources, I see, which is super powerful. But they've even gone beyond that now, sort of now that we're in the digital age, it used to be a number and it is still a number. And you can call one 800 656 hope if you need to talk to somebody, but you can also go to their website and chat, which I think is amazing. And I have recommended this to people because it's quiet. It's private. Um, Nobody's going to overhear you on the phone. And also just, you know, I don't even like to call people to order a pizza. So the idea that like you can chat if that's the, what you're more comfortable with Um, and they have a, a mobile app. And so I just wanted to put that out there that if you're suffering, with feelings or you're needing resources or anything like that. Like this organization really is there for you 24 hours a day, seven days a week.
1: That's so important. Okay. So there's a lot of standout songs on this album. I mean, we could go through them one by one, but is there anything that really spoke to you? I mean, I love them all. It's I like, do too. It's how do you pick your favorite? And, I know. You know. Um, but I will say
0: precious things. I have an interesting relationship with this song. It does have like one of the best lines I think ever written, which is, so you can make me come, that doesn't make you Jesus.
1: Okay, so what she said about this specifically, she told Hot Press in 1992 that just because she can be turned on by a man, quote, doesn't make him a master, doesn't even necessarily make him worthy of love of my love, and now I realize, maybe for the first time in my life, that my capacity for love is incredibly deep, and that for me, to give this to a man, he has to fully understand and respect what that means. Too few do. They're into pillaging, rummaging around, doing little Viking stuff, but most women these days realize that's not enough, boys. And if some women don't, then I hope songs like Precious Things will help open their eyes. And just as importantly, help open the eyes of some men. Amen, Tori. Yep. Thank you, Tori. I mean, I don't love the way it sounds, but it's a
0: powerful song and it's a powerful message. And it has that really fabulous, amazing line that I'm not going to lie has run through my head at certain mm-hmm. times in my life where I've just been like, yeah, <laughs> it doesn't make you a God.
1: It doesn't like, make you a God.
0: You know, and there and there and there is, I think... There are some men who feel like, oh, you know, I can do this or you really like me. And that gives that makes me all powerful. And that when you are young and and you're feeling insecure that you do sort of sometimes it feels like hand yourself over to to somebody who's interested in you and who can bring out certain things in you. And then you realize, like, wait a minute, like those things are in me, not in this other person. Right. And that they need to be honored that way.
1: Right. The song Girl. I actually, this is one of my favorite songs on the album. She says in her lyrics, she's been somebody else's girl. Maybe one day she'll be her own. Yeah. And she said to Rolling Stone, it's an internal fight that when you need other people's approval, when you walk into a room, you're everybody's or anybody's girl. When you don't need them anymore, it's because you have an understanding and an agreement with yourself on who you want to be. And I'm like, wow. It's funny because it's titled girl and it's the feeling and the question we all have as girls, but as women, those questions become fewer. You begin to understand like, Hey, maybe I'm not for everybody. I mean, even into my early middle age, I felt this way. And I still abide by this in a lot of ways. I am the person I'm supposed to be in certain situations with certain people. It's just this like low-grade internal struggle that I believe that I will finally see myself as a woman the day that I don't feel the need to put on this facade for anyone. And I'm not quite there yet. Like I'm getting there. I'm getting there with every year. Well, and don't
0: you feel like it sort of comes in and out? Like you have moments like, and I think- from in fact i i had one of these moments just like 2 days ago um and it's almost like i forget like somehow i sort of default in my head to being a girl yes does your voice change
1: like literally like Oh, Almost everything, everything about myself—the way I hold myself, the tone of my voice—it's so weird because, like, it just goes to show that even though I am a woman, like, you know, right? I, like, I we're am here. I've got the gray hair to prove exactly. it. Exactly. <laughs> I'm like 44 years old. I've got crow's feet. I am a woman, but in my heart, I still feel like a girl. And I, I'm waiting for the day where I actually think of myself as a woman. Like I forget. Like
0: oh no. I am a grown ass, fully competent,
1: fully embodied
0: woman. And I would say that like 95% of the day, I don't walk around like that. <laughs> and so that has it, like this thing that happened a couple of days ago just made me realize like, oh no, this is, this is my focus for this time right now is to learn how to really embody the woman that I am because she's there, like, she's here. I just forget about her. <laughs> And I end up going back, you know, to this girl that's like, I'm here for everybody
1: else. But like the woman that I am, like she is here for me. <laughs> and and so. the true woman that you are, like when you really feel your womanness, it is a feeling of invincibility. It is fleeting for me. I don't feel it all the time. I have moments of it and they're true moments of empowerment. They're right. very bold. But I, I guess what I'm saying is I look forward to the day where I feel them more. It's really
0: powerful. Power of a woman embodied benefits everybody. It benefits society. It benefits her family. It benefits her friends. It benefits her. So it's not, this is not like I'm better than you. This is I'm fully me. And I have to say that that is one of the really special parts of being a midwife is that you get to witness women in their power as they're bringing a baby into the world. It's pretty amazing. And it it happens for everybody. Like women just transform in those moments. And so it's inside every single woman.
1: Which brings me to leather. Leather is a song that
0: has spoken to me a lot in relationships because there is this feeling of I'm more than just something for you to enjoy. I'm I'm more than just somebody to be pleasant and fun and sexual and all of those things. Like there's more to me than that and if you can't honor that then why am I here? And so just the idea I mean I don't know if this is what she means when she says hand me my leather. Like I always pictured her just like grabbing her leather coat and like throwing it on and like out the door she's gone, <laughs> you know. This is also similar to China, that there's that feeling sometimes when you're in a relationship or, or maybe not even in a relationship, you're sort of contemplating a relationship and you have this awareness of like, oh, you're not seeing all of who I am and you're not honoring it. And so I'm going to go like, I can't, I can't talk myself into it. So I'm, I can't blame it on the weather. I can't, you know, right uh, so, so I'm out. And, and it's a hard decision to make sometimes because it really means honoring yourself. And for some reason, that
1: is challenging. I think it's interesting to note that in regard to her sexuality, she told Rolling Stone that she was once in a hotel room and she caught footage of herself in concert on tv and i have never seen tori in concert but i know that you have and another one of our mutual friends has and you know the way she sits at the piano bench and the way she moves her body while she plays she said i know when i'm playing passionately and it's primitive and it's as old as time but i know when i look at myself and i'm in anguish sexualizing myself at that point i was very cut off i only knew how to express myself sexually through my instrument but it left me as soon as I got off stage. So I searched for it and I tried to find it in other people. It's painful when you don't know how to be sexual. I was so torn apart by the pain of not being a woman. I wanted to experience things I'd heard other women talk about. It's real private. So it's like, I think her audience thought Tori Amos is this person who is able to fully inhabit and embody her own sexuality. But just because she moved the way she moved on stage and sang about the things she sang about didn't mean she had it all figured out. She was actually really struggling with her own sexuality. And I find that fascinating. There's such a great line in this that's like subtle, but also clear
0: is like, I can scream as loud as your last one, but I can't claim innocence, right? So about like faking an orgasm, right. and faking sexual enjoyment. And mm-hmm. Certainly you wouldn't see her on stage and be like, oh, she's somebody who's done that. And um, so just kind of calling that out. and, And I don't know. And now I'm like, am I misinterpreting what leather means? Is she meaning like, I mean leather is certainly used in
1: that's what I took it to mean you know I didn't think of
0: it as like like hand me like this like empowerment sexually mm-hmm. yeah see I, I was young when I first heard this song. <laughs> probably didn't know about those things
1: <laughs> but yeah like to, that to be empowered in that way while she asks the questions in her lyrics the way Tori conducted herself she always seemed so confident to me And yet there was a real private struggle going on there. And yes, she does ask the questions, but she always seemed, like you said, a little bit out of reach. And to me, that out of reach was not only just believing in this mythical fairy world with muses. It was more than that to me. It was, she's out of reach because she dares to speak of the things that feel so private. She's out of reach because she has an understanding that I have yet to really comprehend. I think
0: that, I and I still feel this way <laughs> that like there's a depth to her that I can't get that deep. You know what I mean? Like there's a depth to her that I
1: can't reach. To me, it feels more like Tori's in on a secret that I don't know about. And it's like she knows some shit. What do I have to do in my sisterhood to get there? Like, tell me. I don't know what it is. What have you learned? Oh, wise one, you know, because she, I, I called her sister courage when I introduced her because, because Tori is older than us. Yes. But it was more than age. It was like this life experience level of maturity that I don't know if I'll ever get there.
0: I think she has a wisdom and, and a sort of charisma about her that is really cool and also feels very much out of my grasp as a a person.
1: (laughs) What's funny is in interviews, she vibrates on a higher level than like, certainly than I do. Okay. That I would say that like, than most of us do. Right. But then at the same time, there's this really relatable piece to her. And I'm like, This duality of you, the the person you are, like, I'm so mesmerized by her because she was asked by Rolling Stone, like, to talk about her experience in 2020. She had a lot of views about politics, of course. She actually lives in Cornwall, England. Her daughter is now 20. Uh, She lives with her husband. But they asked her, what are you least looking forward to in 2021? Like, 2020 was a shit show. What are you least looking forward to in 2021? And she's, like, practicing for the tour, so she has a tour planned and the thing that she's most looking forward to doing is touring. So it's like, she doesn't want to practice for it. She just wants to go out there and tour. And her biggest hope for 2021 is to get back out on the road and quote, see all the amazing people who I miss so much. So. Isn't that like all of our wishes? I know She's relatable and she's one of us. And yet I can't touch her.
0: I think that what is particularly fascinating and interesting about her is that She's still really relatable and she doesn't present it with any sort of aloofness or sense of that, you know, she's better than anybody. I think she just is who she is and that that's who she is. And so you can see it, but she's not pretentious about it. And she's not, there's not a lot of ego in it. She's a treasure.
1: She is a treasure. She's put out 15 studio albums and has no plans to stop. She's a creative genius. We're so lucky to have her. God bless Tori Amos. And may we all get to see each other at a Tori
0: Amos concert in 2021.
1: (laughs) I love it. That would make me very happy. (laughs) Me too.
0: Thanks so much for joining us. If you can't wait to hear more, please remember to subscribe so you
1: never miss an episode. And if you're feeling chatty, feel free to drop us a line at theuntitledgenxpodcast.com. We hope you keep in touch, beautiful people. Bye. Bye.